0: Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Mulcombe. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Mulcombe Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of. How to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers, and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it.
1: Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're going to find out what we can do about harmful sexual behaviour online. In this episode, we speak to Dr Sarah Napier, who's Research Manager of the Online Sexual Exploitation of Children Research Program at the Australian Institute of Criminology Sarah is on the front line investigating child sexual abuse material and live streaming of child sexual abuse and how best to prevent and stop it. One of the key areas she's found is the vulnerability of children to online sexual exploitation through dating apps. Sarah shares her insights into how child sexual abuse has evolved and changed so quickly in recent months, and how online sexual abuse can feed into juvenile sexual offending. Dr. Nabia, thank you very much for joining us on the Keeping Kids Safe podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: If we can start with this fascinating research that you've just done of late about how prolific it's become, the live streaming of child sexual abuse and how much that area has really exploded.
2: Yeah, so this is a crime that's probably been around ever since video chat functions were uh, introduced into the world. Um, So I would say around 2007, 2008 is when we first started seeing media reports of live streaming of child sexual abuse. But Unfortunately, there's no data to actually measure how much it's increasing, but we do know there's a huge amount of demand for it. So there was an NGO called Ted des Hommes who did a, a study where they had four researchers pretending to be 10-year-old Filipino girls online. And they, they spent uh, 10 weeks on various chat forums online, and during those 10 weeks, they got Requests from twenty thousand different people for a webcam sex show, and so that just sort of gives you an idea of just how much demand there is for this type of crime. So it's something that really needs to be uh, looked into more. We've tried to do some research to try to understand this type of offending, and what we found is that it's generally people in vulnerable countries countries that have high rates of poverty. The Philippines is a particular hub for this type of offending because of the poverty rates, the high-speed internet connection, the good English language proficiency, and also really well-established remittance services. So you can send money instantly to the Philippines pretty easily. And so unfortunately, all of those factors make that location quite conducive to online sexual exploitation of children. And make it quite hard
1: to police, I imagine, as well, because there's a number of factors.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, unfortunately really hard to investigate because of the live streamed nature of the abuse. There often isn't a recording at the end. And so if police want to sort of bring that evidence to court, it's very difficult for them to prove that it happened. So they generally rely on chat logs and call logs from the video chat functions themselves. But because of those factors, it is really difficult. But one thing that always accompanies a live stream session is a payment. And so people... And the financial sector and police have been working together to try to track financial transactions to try and use that in investigations, um, which has been really useful.
1: There's also some concerns about the changes in encryption on a number of the online services now, isn't there? Does that make it harder as
2: well to police? Yes, absolutely. So there's a number of platforms that use video chat functions that use end-to-end encryption And when there's end-to-end encryption on a platform, even the platform themselves can't actually access the private chats. So that makes it really difficult for police to investigate these crimes on certain platforms and also to have evidence to prove that it happened in court. So for example, WhatsApp has end-to-end encryption and we have no idea how much child exploitation is happening on that platform, even though they have 2 billion users. And with end-to-end encryption being rolled out across all of Meta's platforms, we're going to see a reduction in the number of child exploitation reports from those platforms, which doesn't mean that it's reducing. It just means that we know less about what's happening. So it is a real problem.
1: And other platforms are looking at implementing this encryption, which will make it harder.
2: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we need to do in the future is, if we're we're going to allow end-to-end encryption then the platforms using it need to develop technology that scans child sexual abuse and exploitation, whether that be through images or language in chats, to scan that actually is, a, is able to scan it in the end-to-end encryption environment. And I'm not a tech person, so I don't know how you do that. But if they're coming out with all these fancy encryptions, then they need to deal with the risks to children and come up with ways to actually reduce that risk. It's it's a big topic
1: of debate about the rise in generative AI and really the, the good and bad aspects of that. I mean, there are such concerning aspects about what that is producing. But as you touched on there, hopefully we can actually use it to actually also detect...
2: Yes, absolutely. I think generative AI has been released without much thought on how this will affect children and people are already starting to generate fake child sexual abuse material using generative AI and people are already using it to, for image-based abuse and that kind of thing. So this has really been released with without much thought about safety protocols. But in saying that, apart from going back and looking at how we can reduce the risk. I agree with you, I think we need to use more technology to try and prevent and disrupt the online sexual exploitation of children, whether that be through automating removal of child abuse material, assisting it with police investigations, and also using it as a mechanism for, under really strict-tested conditions, For people to get help, like kids that don't want to talk to their parents or their police, you could actually generate a really good tool that's tested very vigorously and make sure it's safe and everything, but where kids can go to find out where they should get help if they've been sexually exploited. Another emerging area that
1: you've been researching is looking at the online dating apps. I don't think I had any idea just what a danger area that that can be for finding children to exploit?
2: Yes. So it is pretty scary uh, what's happening on dating apps uh, that we really didn't know was happening. So I work for the Australian Institute of Criminology and we did a survey recently of just under 10,000 Australians who use mobile dating apps and websites and we asked them a range of questions about sexual violence and child exploitation So, we found that 12% of these people had been approached by another dating app user for child sexual exploitation. And when I say that, I mean that they've been asked for sexual photos of children or children they had access to. They'd been asked sexual questions about their children, uh, for example, their breast size and whether they had their period and they'd been asked um, to meet their children in person before they felt it was appropriate. And so that's around 1200 people that are getting approached by other dating app users uh, purely to get access to their children for sexual exploitation. So it's, it's pretty concerning. And we did also look at who's most vulnerable to those kind of requests and we found that uh, indigenous Australians, people with disability, people who speak a language other than English as their first language, and people who live with children were at the highest risk of actually being approached for child sexual exploitation on on mobile dating apps and websites. Is this something that really needs better um, policy
1: around it? Both, both really from the dating apps themselves, but also legislators. Like, what really needs to be done to protect kids? better
2: yeah I think I think both really Um, I think dating apps and on all platforms really were really designed without child safety in mind and uh, that's across the board and that really needs to change and it's not too late to redesign them you know we can we can start uh, platforms can start introducing safety by design measures that uh, don't so easily connect children and adults together or have pop-up warning messages when certain language is used that might be reflective of child exploitation. So there's a lot that can be done and really still needs to be done. We have had a lot of talks with um, dating app companies about what what they could be doing and about our research findings. And some are doing more than others, let's just say that much. And I think that a lot more needs to be done in that area. Um, I also think that there could be more regulation of these types of um, dating apps. And I think the eSafety Commissioner is doing a lot of great work in this area with making platforms sort of accountable for actually what they're doing to protect children. In terms of dating apps and websites, I think more needs to be done in terms of regulation. Exactly. I think, I mean, so much seems to be pushed back
1: onto the parents or the, the mums. It's, it's just like, but, but there is a role for policy in this as well in legislation, isn't there?
2: Yeah, I think so. But we have to also be realistic that legislation takes a really long time and it's a complicated process. So while it would be great to be able to rely on legislation and, and legislation reform, in the meantime, we we still need to do things to protect children so i think it's a matter of collaborating with the platforms themselves they need to be working with law enforcement and NGOs a lot more to redesign their platforms so that they're safe for children and this
1: is really part of uh, your research is just this ever evolving nature of what you're looking at just how things have changed so much even in the last 18 months
2: yes absolutely and Things are just, like you say, constantly changing in the online sexual exploitation of children space and we really need to keep up with that. So I think any sort of policies and long-term plans need to be adaptable, noting that new things come up all the time. I mean, two years ago, sexual extortion rates were very different and we've seen a huge increase in sexual extortion against children just in the last couple of years, you know, in... America Australia and other countries and so just trying to keep up with that alone is very difficult and now with generative AI that offending can be made much more easy and and people can target uh, like a lot of children at once through AI so we really need to keep on top of what's happening and be adaptable
1: because the offenders are obviously pretty adaptable as well they're finding this new technology and using it uh It's just all of that has changed, isn't it, where before you spoke about these pedophiles wanting to do this sort of behaviour, would perhaps go to an overseas country to find the children. You don't have to go travel anymore.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to the example of live streaming of child sexual abuse, like you said, offenders had to travel to offend against vulnerable children. Now they just have to find an adult online who is vulnerable enough and has children and they can just pay them what they think from an Australian perspective is a, is a small amount of money, around $50, but from someone in the Philippines, that's a quite significant amount of money. And with someone coming from a poverty-stricken family, unfortunately, a lot of people in vulnerable countries will accept that money and, and offer their children to be sexually abused online. So offenders essentially don't have to leave their bedroom if they want to abuse a child now so yeah absolutely and they've been able to do this with fairly low risk so yeah There's constantly emerging threats to children that we have to think about.
1: From your research, have you been able to see if there is like a typical offender
2: or if the type of offender has changed with all these changes in technology? So what I've seen that there really isn't a typical offender in this area. So we have offenders who are judges, lawyers, cleaners, teachers, construction workers, people coming from all walks of life and also people of all ages are actually... Engaging in this type of offending. So, if you look at the criminal justice figures, they'll tell you that uh, the typical offender is a male aged 35 to 45 when they're arrested for child sexual abuse material offending. But in reality, I just did a survey for my PhD of 5,000 people in five different countries asking them if they've ever used or or looked at child sexual abuse material. And of those who said that they did, which was about 740, 70% said that they first viewed it when they were under 18. So that just shows you that offenders really are getting younger and younger. Now, these kids are obviously, we don't call them offenders, but that's when the onset is starting. That's when they're first being exposed to this material. And then some of them might actually just grow out of it, which is really problematic because, apart from the legality and the risk of criminalization for young people, they might not know that what they're viewing is quite abusive. You know, if there's a 14 year old looking at another 14 year old in a picture, they might think, oh, that's okay because they're the same age, and they might not realize the conditions under which that video was made, you know, if there was an adult there coercing that person. So it's problematic in a lot of ways. It could also normalise child sexual abuse. So it could make young people more susceptible to both victimisation and perpetration. So that's just an example of another cohort who are actually viewing this material. So to answer your question, there really is no typical offender. And there's people from all walks of life actually engaging in this type of material.
1: Oh, such important research you're doing. And that anonymous survey, that's so clever to to just be able to get people to admit to these sort of offences. And what what do you think from there? What's what's your next step in your research from here?
2: Yes, well, I think there's a lot. More that needs to be done in this area. We recently just did the the survey on mobile dating apps and victimization. I think more needs to be done on the perpetrators, understanding why perpetrators use mobile dating apps and who what their backgrounds are and that kind of thing. I think we can also learn a lot more from live streaming of child sexual abuse. So we started looking at Ostrac data uh, which showed us a sample of 256 Australians who had made transactions to watch children being sexually abused in the Philippines. And over a 13-year period, those, and these were people based in Australia, over a 13-year period, those people spent 1.3 million Australian dollars watching children, to watch children being abused. Yeah. And that was over two over 2,000 transactions. So we can Imagine just one transaction is one session of abuse. It's a huge amount of harm inflicted on children in the Philippines. So I think there's a lot more that we can do to sort of track payments, to understand more about the behaviour and help to identify offending and stop it from escalating. And um, one thing we can do is, and what we're hoping to do, is get some more data from Oztrack and compare the live streaming of child sexual abuse transactions with a sample of non-offending transactions to come up with a set of indicators for transactions that are made for live streaming of child sexual abuse. And then that can be used by the financial sector and police to identify suspicious transactions. So that's sort of one example of what we can do further in the area. One thing that I'm often asked, I think, as a journalist when I'm reporting in these
1: areas is police checks. I think people really seem to want to hope that better police checks of potential offenders can help in this area. What's your research shown there?
2: Look, I don't think police checks and more police checks will cut it. And the reason is, is that there are so many offenders out there who aren't getting caught. So, They can undergo a police check and it won't come up in the system that they've done anything because they've never been caught. So there are offenders still being able to work with children, et cetera, getting access to children who have a history of offending, but it's never been reported. Let's look at the example of the childcare worker recently who offended against 91 children across Queensland and New South Wales in childcare, you know. How how did he manage to offend against so many children without getting caught? It's more complex
1: than just tightening police checks in every state.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to look beyond the police checks and acknowledge that there are offenders out there who aren't caught and may not ever get caught. And we need to look more at other measures like prevention measures. So, for example... There's a theory in criminology called situational crime prevention, and it's about increasing the risk for offenders and increasing the effort for offenders. And the theory is that if offending is just too hard and risky, people won't do it. And to apply that to that childcare worker example, if he didn't have a phone with him in the childcare centre, he wouldn't have been able to record all those children while he was sexually abusing them and, and posted online. If there was a rule that there were, there's no one childcare worker allowed alone with children in a room at one time, there has to be two, he wouldn't have been able to sexually abuse those children because there would be someone else there watching him. So I'm not saying that these rules have to be implemented right now. This is just something I thought on the spot right now. But little things like that, thinking through what measures can be put in place to prevent this from happening again, are really important, especially when we know that a lot of offending goes undetected.
1: What does the research show as to the broader effects of on victims and survivors of online sexual exploitation of children?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of research on the long-term impacts of survivors of contact child sexual abuse, and that includes things like lower educational attainment, higher rates of unemployment, uh, long-term psychological problems, suicidal ideation, criminal justice contact and a lot of other adverse outcomes. So a, a child who has been sexually abused has all those risks already. If you add a the addition of online sexual exploitation, so if an offender records their abuse and then posts it online, there are additional adverse outcomes that are very unique to online sexual exploitation. So, for example, survivor surveys have found that survivors of this type of abuse constantly feel like they're being re victimized over and over every time that someone looks at their abuse online. So, for them, they're dealing with the, the trauma of when the abuse happened, but then when it's constantly being viewed online, they're dealing with that additional trauma. Survivors are also terrified that someone has seen their abuse online and will recognise them on the street. That's another form of anxiety that they deal with. And actually it's a uh, it's sort of realistic anxiety because some survivors are actually recognised by, by offenders. So there's whole networks of offenders on the dark net who talk about certain victims and often the victims are their fathers or family members so they use their real name when they post their images and these offenders online are talking about oh have you seen this video collection of of this this child that that's the best one you know you should look at it or have you seen this one and so you've got these fan clubs of offenders online and then they start talking about I wonder what they're doing now and they start googling and they find pictures of them and they post, oh, this is so-and-so, now she's at this university, look, look what she looks like now, or look who she's married now. There's been survivors of this online abuse that offenders have sent them, you know, sex toys and, other, and notes and that kind of thing. It, so they really are, like, realistic to have this anxiety that they're going to be recognised. So there are a huge amount of adverse outcomes for survivors of this type of abuse.
1: It's just horrendous how extensive the the ripple effects go, isn't it? But what can be done to reduce the online sexual exploitation of children then?
2: Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. And I think for a long time, we've relied too much on police. Police are doing an amazing job and they're doing their absolute best. But police even admit that it's beyond their resource capability to keep up with the, the level of offending that's happening online. So, We really need to work across sectors, and that means involving government, law enforcement, NGOs, and the private sector. The tech sector is particularly important. People who design online platforms where you can share pictures, they really need to be involved in the solution, and they really need to be doing more to reduce the risk to children on their platforms, because before their platforms came along, these problems weren't happening because there was no online. And so obviously they were happening offline, but now there's an added element of the online abuse. So because they've created an environment that facilitates this abuse, even though they don't want the abuse on their platforms, it's happening. They really need to be a part of the solution. So we cannot do it with just one sector trying to do all the work. It has to be a a group effort across sectors. Dr. Sarah
1: Napier, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for this important research that you're doing into this really difficult area. No problem. Thank you so much for
2: having me.
0: And that's the end of this episode of Keeping
2: Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Walkham Foundation. Make
0: sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode.
2: You can support the work of the Daniel Morcombe Foundation
0: by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution.
2: Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.